Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is going to take a look back at an underrated gem of a film, one that most people who've seen it seem to really like it, but has never really become the cult film a number of other inferior movies from the 80s teen comedy genre have. Phil Giovanno's 1987 directorial debut, Three O'Clock High. I guess I should have known from the beginning it was going to be one of those days. His name is... Jerry Mitchell. Hi, Jerry. 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 Hi, I'm, I'm Jerry Mitchell. I'm with the school paper. He just met the new kid in school. The guy's the closest thing to Charlie Manson ever seen at Weaver. Now, we're going to have a fight today after school. He's got six hours to get out of it. It's been quite a morning, Jerry. You'll say that again. He'll try running. I wouldn't leave school without a good reason. He'll try bribery. If I can get the money, do you think you'd do it for me? Ravel will never bother you again. Guaranteed. He'll try robbery. I hear you're giving Jerry Mitchell a hard time. Until finally... The fight is on you and me in the parking lot, 3 o'clock. Jerry's got a lot on his mind. Ten seconds. But he's not thinking about math or English. Five seconds. Because at three o'clock, he's going to make history. There isn't going to be any fight today. <laughs> the screenplay for the film was written by the team of Richard C. Matheson and Tom Solosi based on some of their own high school experiences. Matheson, the son of famed sci-fi writer Richard Matheson, and the older brother of Bill and Ted co-creator Chris Matheson, and Solosi, had been writing in television for nearly a decade, for shows as varying as Three's Company, The Incredible Hulk, and The A-Team. The pair had come to the attention of Steven Spielberg, who hired them to write two episodes of his 1985 to 1987 anthology series, Amazing Stories, including the Toby Hooper episode, Miss Stardust, which was based on a story by Matheson's father. Impressed with the writers, Spielberg asked them if they had anything sitting around that they wanted to get made. They did. A screenplay called After School, a feature-length comedy inspired by the Gary Cooper classic High Noon, about a high school student who will do anything to get out of a fight after school. Phil Giovanno had started out in the industry when he was still in high school, getting himself a job on the first Star Trek movie as a special visual consultant under the tutelage of John Dykstra. He would attend the USC Film School after graduating high school, where his 1984 student thesis film, Last Chance Dance, would be seen by amongst others, Steven Spielberg, during that year's film school screening of the student films for industry professionals. Spielberg would call Joanno at home the following day and invited the young director to make an episode of Amazing Stories. Spielberg was so impressed with Joanno's episode, Santa 85, that he would invite Joanno back to direct a second episode, The Doll, which was originally written in 1964 as an episode of The Twilight Zone, 
and one which would win John Lithgow an Emmy for Guest Performer in a Drama Series. Before that episode even aired, Spielberg invited Joanno to direct from his choice of movies Spielberg's production company, Amblin Entertainment, was developing. Joanna would choose After School. Casting would begin in the summer of 1986. Amongst the actors considered for the lead role of Jerry Mitchell was Corey Feldman, who was 15 at the time and might have been a little too young to play the high school senior, but he was hot in Hollywood coming off of Rob Reiner's Stand By Me. And Kirk Cameron, who was at least 16 at the time, but he would have needed to get time off from his hit television show Growing Pains. In the end, 25-year-old Casey Shamashko, who had previously had small roles in Back to the Future and Stand By Me, would get the role, his first leading role. Another plus for casting Shamashko was that the production wouldn't need to shoot around their lead actor needing to be in some sort of offset tutoring program for at least three hours a day like what would have been needed if the lead were Feldman or Cameron. 25-year-old Richard Tyson, who had but one credit to his resume on an early third-season episode of the Bruce Willis Sybil Shepherd show Moonlighting, would be cast as Jerry's antagonist, Buddy Ravel. As a matter of fact, both Shamashko and Tyson were older than their director, but only by a few months. Other members of the cast included newcomers Stacy Glick, Anne Ryan, Yeardley Smith, and Jonathan Wise, as well as industry veterans Philip Baker Hall, Mitch Pelegi, John P. Ryan, and Jeffrey Tambor. Future Freaks and Geeks co-creator Paul Feig would ha also be featured in the movie in a small role as a hall monitor. Another up-and-comer hired by Joanno on a production full of up-and-comers was cinematographer Barry Sonnenfeld who had previously worked with the Coen brothers on their first two features, Blood Simple and Raising Arizona. Although Raising Arizona was released by 20th Century Fox, it had been produced independently through Circle Pictures, so this would be Sonnenfeld's first actual studio production, although for some strange reason he is credited as only the lighting consultant. Shooting on the $5 million film would begin in Ogden, Utah, on October 16, 1986, utilizing Ogden High School, an Art Deco-style school built in 1936 as part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration, as its main location, the fictional Weaver High School. While much of the film would be shot in the afternoon and early evening hours, Ogden High was very much open for business at the time. So, while the production would use several classrooms and other spaces, such as the student store, cafeteria, hallways, and football field throughout the shoot, occasionally they would need to film while classes were still in session, stopping production only when classes were out between periods. Only two sets were needed to be specifically built for the production, the boys' bathroom where Jerry and Buddy's fateful first meeting would occur, and the school nurse's office, where Jerry would try and fail in one of his attempts to get out of his end-of-school fight. That fight would be the last major set piece shot for the movie, which shot over six days in the parking lot of the Ogden High School. More than 200 students from the school would be used as extras. The production would wrap on December 1st, having brought more than $1 million from Hollywood into the local economy.
but it would be another 12 years before Ogden would see another major Hollywood movie come to town. The 1999 Melissa Joan Hart, Adrian Grenier comedy Drive Me Crazy, which would also use Ogden High as a major location. Once Joanna returned to Los Angeles to begin post-production, he started to craft a film that maybe wasn't exactly the film that Spielberg and co-executive producer Aaron Spelling had originally envisioned. Joanna would admit years later that he was heavily under the thrall of Martin Scorsese's exceptional 1985 film After Hours when he was working on the movie, partially inspired by the similar titles, and the final film would look and feel not unlike Scorsese's film. It is said that Spielberg, while being among Scorsese's best friends, was incensed that Joanno had turned in a far different and darker film from what he was expecting, and Spielberg would soon have Universal remove both his name and the Amblin Entertainment name and logo from the credits of the film and all press and publicity materials. That would pretty much sound the death knell for the film at Universal. When the film, whose title was changed from After School to Three O'Clock High during post-production, was released into theaters on October 9, 1987, it would only open in 849 screens, several hundred less than the typical wide release around this time, like Fatal Attraction, or the Dudley Moore Kirk Cameron comedy Like Father Like Son, or the James Belushi drama The Principal, the latter two which also opened on the same day, and the film would only receive limited advertising support from the studio. The movie would open in ninth place that weekend, with only $1.5 million in ticket sales. Eighth place that weekend would go to the Richard Dreyfus Emilio Estevez action comedy Stakeout, which would gross $1.7 million in its 10th week while still playing in 1,115 theaters. And Dirty Dancing would earn over $2 million from 978 screens in its 8th week. The following weekend wouldn't be much better. Dropping 32 screens in its 2nd week, 3 O'Clock High would only gross $846,000 from 817 screens, which would put it in 11th place, just below Hello Mary Lou Prom Night 2, which would gross 7% more than 3 O'Clock High on only 42% of the screens. Ironically, this is the week the story in the movie takes place, specifically on Tuesday, October 20th, 1987. And by week three, the film would be out of the top 20 altogether, and it would be out of theaters by the end of the year, with a final gross of $3.685 million in ticket sales. And what happened next was the true magic of home video in the VCR revolution. Before, say, 1975, if you wanted to see a movie after it had played in theaters, you either had to wait for some television station to play it, or you'd have to wait for one of your local repertory theaters to play it, if your town even had a repertory theater. And a movie like Three O'Clock High would probably only show up on the Late Late Movie on one of the non-network stations in town around 3 a.m., and absolutely never at a rep house. And that would be years after the fact. When cable movie channels started becoming a thing, that movie would show maybe a year or two later, and it 
might play 20 times over the course of a month, but then you might not see it again until it showed up on the Late Late Movie on one of those non-network stations around 3 a.m. So when VCRs became a mass consumer product and you could go down to your local record store or mom-and-pop video store and rent a movie, you'd have to hope that the movie you'd want to see was released on video and that your local record store or mom-and-pop store carried it. By 1988, studios realized that they could make money, lots of money, more money, selling more videos at a lower price point by selling movies directly to consumers. So while a blockbuster movie like Beverly Hills Cop would have cost $90 when it came out on home video just two years earlier, a movie like Three O'Clock High would only cost about $30. And then there was that major perforation of movie channels. HBO would be the first major television channel dedicated to the showing of motion pictures when it started broadcasting to 365 cable television subscribers in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania on November 8, 1972. Although the first event on HBO would be a hockey game between the New York Rangers and the Vancouver Canucks. After the game, HBO would show the 1971 Paul Newman drama, Sometimes a Great Notion. The movie channel would start up as the Star Channel a year later before becoming the Movie Channel in 1979. Showtime would start up in 1976 and Cinemax in 1980. And there was special subscription services like Select TV and On TV where a set-top box would track what you watched and you only paid for the movies and events that you did watch instead of a flat monthly fee like an HBO or a Showtime. On TV would become somewhat famous in 1982 when it would get George Lucas to allow the service to be the first outlet on television to show Star Wars over the air. And there was the late, great Z Channel, the Los Angeles-based pay channel, which never had more than 110,000 subscribers at any time in its history from 1974 to 1989, but changed the way we watched movies at home by showing films letterboxed in their original aspect ratio, presenting director's cuts of movies, and showing a wide variety of foreign films. If you haven't seen Zan Cassavetti's amazing 2004 documentary, Z Channel, A Magnificent Obsession, please do yourself a favor and watch it after we're done with this show in a few minutes. Lucas was a fan of the Z Channel, and he would grant Z the very first broadcast of The Empire Strikes Back in 1985. By 1988, there were dozens of cable and subscription television services, and they all needed content. A lot of content. And studios would sell a group of titles to these services as a package. So a movie like Three O'Clock High, that may have been good, but didn't necessarily get seen in theaters, would be able to get a second chance through repeated airings. It might show eight or ten times over the course of a month exclusively on a premium cable service like HBO or Showtime, and several more times over the next few months before making its way into circulation at the basic cable channels that happen to also show movies from time to time, like USA or WGN, with the occasional commercial interruption and judicious editing for content. And because we could all now program our videotape machines to record anything we wanted, 
we could tape an airing of something potentially interesting that we saw in the TV guide listings, even if it was airing at 3 o'clock in the morning, and watch it when we were ready. And if we liked it, watch it again and again and again. This perfect storm of cable television access and videotape recording would alter how we experience movies and give way to a cult of film aficionados who previously didn't have access to so many films, especially in, in suburban and rural areas that didn't have very many movie theaters to begin with, and only two or four or six screens per location, and absolutely zero repertory movie houses. It also didn't hurt that Three O'Clock High is a damn good film. Jerry's dilemma, wanting to avoid conflict, with a seemingly unbeatable force, is universal. The authority figures at school are mostly useless, which many of us felt at high school. Things that happen to Jerry at school are often strange and confusing, which is also how many of us felt at high school. Casey Shamashko is a likable lead, and Richard Tyson a formidable opponent. The movie moves at a brisk pace, but it never feels rushed. And, thanks to Joanno's directing choices and Sonnenfeld's camera work, it feels like what a Coen Brothers teen movie might have been, if that's what they were interested in at that time in their careers. The reviews for Three O'Clock High were mixed at the time. Roger Ebert really, really didn't like it, giving it but one star out of four, feeling the film was another brick in a long slide towards fascism in Hollywood teen movies. I disagree with his position. But his review is well worth reading. His stance was more about the loss of innocence in America and the Ramboization of Hollywood. But maybe that wasn't the most fair burden to put on an inexpensive teen film. But his intentions were good. Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader was a bit kinder, recognizing Joanno's efforts to subvert the typical teen comedy and even comparing the adult authority figures to caricatures worthy of Jean Vigo while Michael Wilmington in the Los Angeles Times felt the film was a pleasant little surprise that transcended the typical teen clichés with calculated self-mockery. Joanna would move on to the U2 concert film Rattle and Hum the following year, and for the most part, he has had a decent but unspectacular career in Hollywood. Neither Shamashko nor Tyson became stars afterwards and a number of the younger supporting cast members would soon leave Hollywood and do other things with their lives. Stacy Glick, who plays the plucky and thankfully non-combative younger sister Bree, is now the vice president of a prestigious literary agency in New York City. Lisa Morrow, who plays Karen, Jerry's object of desire, is now a real estate agent in Central Florida. And Jonathan Wise, who plays Jerry's best friend and editor, and the catalyst for Jerry's terrible horrible, no good, very bad day, left the industry for a life of anonymity after appearing in a first season episode of the CBS late night crime time after prime time series Forever Night in 1992. The film is, at least in October 2020 as I record this, rather easy to find. It's available to rent or purchase from Amazon, Apple TV, DirecTV, Fandango Now, Google Play, Stars, and Voodoo, and Shop Factory put out a very good Blu-ray of the movie back in 2017. And it's as good as you remember if you were a teenager in 1987 and haven't seen it since your teen years. And that theme song? 
it should have been a hit. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will be about an independent distribution company so obscure, I may be the only person who never worked for the company to recall it by name, the Management Company Entertainment Group. But if you're a fan of 80s movies, you'll definitely know one of their films. Here's a little hint. talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, hosted, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings which helped the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Good night.